We're live. Hello, everybody. We're live again. Oh, so fantastic. Welcome to all the free thinkers, conservatives, liberals, leftists, everybody who's going to be eventually watching this show. We hope this is unapologetic live. <laughs> How crazy is that? So new show. We told you guys there is new content happening after uh, Will and Amala saw itself out. Will's coming out with a new show here shortly. So be on the lookout for that as well. And a lot of you are asking me, you know, is Taylor going to be on the new show? Taylor, are you going to be on this new show? Is Taylor here? <laughs> Am I? I hear. I don't know. Uh, where are we in this moment in time? It's, you know, honestly, it's like, uh, what do I say? It's like riding a bike. It feels great to be back. We've been working so hard on this set and just transfer all the promotions and everything, but we're back. Feels really good to be back. And uh, yeah, it's just like riding a bike. It's just like riding a bike. We're back. So I figured I, I was thinking about, you know, what do we make this first episode of Unapologetic Live? How do we bring in this show? And I, I want to talk about first the format of the show, how it's going to work. It's going to be a daily show that we do every single weekday coming to you at 3 p.m. Pacific at 6 at six o'clock Eastern, my bad guys. And every day we're gonna be talking about a new issue, taking a deep dive into a different subject matter. We're gonna be talking about Disney, whether or not uh, we can constitute that as grooming, which is a big debate among conservatives and leftists right now. We're gonna be talking about TikTok. We're gonna be talking about transgenderism and gender theory and critical race theory, things that are happening in the news, things that people are talking about, trending topics on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and YouTube and all those platforms. And every day we'll come to you with something new. Now, if you guys were on YouTube yesterday and you're subscribed to this channel, you saw a video go up about policing in America and how I used to hate cops. I used to think the cops were racist. I was terrified of them due to the indoctrination of my past. As some of you know, I was a woke leftist, uh, not even what, four years ago now? Insane. Uh, so we made a video about that, uh, really identifying whether or not the police in America are systemically racist. Now, I came to the conclusion that they are not, and you can go and check out that video and see the facts that I found to get to that conclusion. See if you disagree. I saw a lot of people in the comments going through and going through their own personal experiences with police officers, how they came to their own conclusion on the subject matter. And really what we want to do with this channel is have open, compassionate, good faith conversations about the issues that everyone's talking about. I think so... So much of what we need right now is dialogue, and that's something that I want to encourage with this show. So this is not just a show for people who are conservative. It's a show for anybody and everyone who is willing to listen to an opinion that they may or may not agree with. And we're going to start off the show just by talking about the issue at hand, going through the different perspectives that people have on it, what their possible biases might be, what my possible biases and blinders might be, and then we'll sort of go through some research and try to come to a conclusion on things. Now, uh, like I said, go and check out that policing video. See what you guys think about it. Leave a comment down below. And another thing that I really want to accomplish with this show is sort of stepping outside of what is considered to be the mainstream narrative, because so much of what we hear is just this cookie cutter version of what people want you to know and the things that they want you to think. And we see this so often on social media. We see this in news media. We're now seeing it in our schools. We're seeing it in Hollywood and entertainment where really you just turn on a show right now and I feel like I'm just getting nothing more than political propaganda, even with things that are purely meant to be entertainment. So really analyzing these mainstream narratives and seeing is what is being said here really true? What are the motivations behind people saying these things? Why might somebody want to trick you into believing something? And, you know, am I right about this? And as much as I want to call out other people for, for lying and being wrong and promoting false narratives, I also want to have that accountability with myself. So if I say something that is false or that promotes a bias of mine, I want that to be called out. I want us to come to the bottom of that, uh, of that argument and really find out why we believe the things that we believe and how we get to objective truth because that's what I think we need to start finding in this society. Again, so people of differing thoughts, welcome. Today, I wanted to sort of lay the groundwork and reintroduce myself because I know a lot of you know me. You're watching on PragerU. You're watching on uh, the Unapologetic channel uh, right now, which halfway through this show, we're actually going to be transitioning over to my channel, Amala Epinobi, colon, Unapologetic. It's in the description down below. Hopefully, Spencer or Taylor will also put that down in the chat. I want you guys to be watching over there. So halfway through the show, we are going to cut out on PragerU and head over there. That's just on YouTube, by the way. So if you're watching on Facebook, you're good. You can stay there. Exactly. Yeah. So just on YouTube. Now, 
let's talk about this. Uh, Taylor, obviously, we we know, I've already told everybody, I used to be a leftist. Were you ever a leftist in your life or have anything that deviated from, you know, mainstream conservative belief? Um, I, I was never very political. I was definitely never a leftist. I was, I was just raised in a very uh, conservative Christian home and environment. So, my I'm on the flip side of the coin from you is there what my experience with fundamentalism or, you know, not thinking for yourself it is more on that side of, of like religious fundamentalism and, and beliefs in the church that I just believe because I was told to or kind of just raised in that world and never wasn't really thinking for myself, but was just going along with it. So my journey was more one of uh looking for objective truth and and distilling out the dogma in my that I was just fed through religion rather than distilling out dogma I was fed from a leftist upbringing. Right. And I feel like everybody sort of has those journeys in life. You have the things that you're taught as a child and the things that sort of stick with you from your your cultural environment, your socioeconomic environment, and those are the things that you just sort of live with and accept to be fact. And it's not until you sort of get older and start gaining experience and meeting people and hopefully gaining wisdom that you realize oh man, I just have a specific set of beliefs or, uh, you know, a map of meaning of Jordan Peterson would call it. (laughs) And I need to start looking outside of that. So a lot of you ask me, first of all, how were you a leftist? What happened there? How did that come to be true for you? And then what woke you up? What was the sort of aha moment? And we're going to get there and uh, you're going to eventually learn that I did not have an aha moment. There was a long and gradual process to getting red-pilled, as we like to call it. So I'll tell you a bit about my story. So hi, everybody. I'm Lepinobi, 21 years old now. Uh, When I was a child, I was born and raised in a really rural conservative town in central Florida. Very yeehaw, how y'all doing, southern hospitality type town. And that's where I was. And I was a child of three. So I have a younger sister and an older brother. And I happen to be raised by a single mother. So my mother happens to be white. Uh, That is not particularly important to me, but it just becomes important to the story as we go through it and sort of talk about the things that I was taught as a child. Obviously, if you look at me, I'm not I'm not the whitest individual. I happen to be half black and half white, but I was raised by my white mother. And through the duration of my childhood, I was taught a lot of leftist ideology because my mother happens to work for the political left and she still does to this day. And I always try to think back. You know, a lot of these things come to you in retrospect. They're not things that you truly think about when you're living in the experience and you're going through it yourself. And I think back to what was my earliest political memory. And when trying to come to a conclusion on that, I found that I think 2008, the 2008 election, Uh, night was my earliest political memory. And I remember at the time I was eight years old and I was so excited because my mom said I could stay up past 930. (laughs) And I thought, okay, this is a fantastic day. I get to sit and watch the election results, which was so boring to me, but I got to stay up past my bedtime. So that was great. And I stayed up and I sat in the living room with my mother, my sister, and I believe my brother was there as well. And we watched as all these votes came in. And I remember not even being really half awake when they actually announced who the president was, Barack Obama. But when this did happen, my mother started bawling her eyes out in front of the TV. And I sat there just sort of as a young kid who had heard whispers about the election. And in school, we were doing our own little class election where we voted for which student we would want to be the president of the class. And I watched my mom crying at the television. And I did not understand it. it. It baffled me in that moment. Because my mom was, as you can imagine, very adamant about what she believed, very strong-willed in what she believed, and very open about it. And she had, of course, supported Barack Obama, and in the work she was doing was helping to gain votes for, for this candidate. So I watched her crying in front of the TV, and I thought, why is she crying? This is the man that she supported, and now he's president. This is great. And my mom made an effort to tell me, my sister, and my brother that she was crying and so emotional because she never thought a country as racist as America was going to be able to elect a black president. And I remember hearing that at eight years old and going, oh, what? So this is a weird thing to have a black president. This isn't this hasn't happened before. And uh, I, I remember thinking in that moment that blackness must be something that's really important. And my mother 
made an effort to teach me that blackness was something that was to be loved and blackness was something that was great, although there were a lot of people that didn't see it that way and that our country had sort of shaped itself around this narrative and this standard of whiteness. And I fell outside of that standard. So life could have been a little harder for me because of that. So that was eight-year-old me. And again, my mother was a single mother. So on days that she was working and maybe I was off from school, I was going into work with my mother. And I remember being surrounded by people who were very much entrenched in this ideology, teaching it, practicing it, preaching it and organizing around it because that's what they did uh, in the state of Florida where I'm from this organization was pretty famous for staging massive protests and organizing through grassroots methods and getting people to to protest and join their cause in a really effective manner. So I would go to school with my mother and I'd be drawing on poster boards and coloring in letters on on these little posters and, and picket signs. And little did I know I was I was making protest signs for the protests that they were going to go out and do. And slowly but surely, as a young person, I would learn this and learn exactly what I was doing and and come to have a deep admiration for it and an appreciation for it. And I found that that was something that was very much encouraged on at least this side of politics. And we'll talk about whether or not that is actually something that conservatives do as well. But as a young kid being told a lot, you're the future of America. It's very important that you know these things and that you get involved now so that you can reshape the way that this country looks when you're older. So we had the 2008 stuff. We had this super young girl who was very cognizant of not only her race, but also her gender and this whole idea of patriarchy. And in the background, also, we had police shootings that were starting to become a massive narrative. I remember as a young teenager hearing about Tamir Rice and Eric Garner and Michael Brown and really seeing the Black Lives Matter movement come to fruition. And I would watch these horrifying videos. I think the one that I remember the most is Philando Castile. And I don't remember exactly what year that police shooting happened. But I remember being on my phone, going on social media, pulling this up and watching Philando Castile get shot and killed by a police officer. In this particular situation, he was stopped during a traffic stop. And Philando was very respectful to this police officer. He made the police officer aware that he did have a firearm in his car, but that he owned it lawfully and legally and that he had no intention of reaching for it. And when asked to reach for his wallet by the police officer, the police officer shot him. And during this whole encounter, which was absolutely horrific to watch, his girlfriend and his girlfriend's daughter uh, were in this car as well watching this. So you could hear the screams from the girlfriend in the car. You could hear the police officer in the background sort of freaking freaking out over what he had just done. But that video was given to me and sold to me with this narrative of racism, that this is something that happens all the time and that I as a black woman should really be really cognizant of it, not even through my own victimhood of dying at the hands of a police officer, although I did believe that, but that I should be some sort of ally for the black males in my community, in my life and in America. So think about all those things happening at once. This influence of leftist ideology from my you know, parental figure, getting it from social media, having teachers who were very open about their leftism as well, and then seeing it on mainstream media in, in the content that I was watching and being exposed to. As you can imagine, I too became a leftist. And we'll, we'll talk about how I began to get more involved and why that is sort of the natural pathway for people who enter this particular avenue of thought. So I went through middle school and of course I was an activist in in a way that was sort of less active than I would become in high school and graduating. But I was constantly arguing with people, constantly picking fights. Again, I lived in a super conservative area, so there was plenty of kids who were willing to argue with me over the things that they believed, whether it was about women's right to an abortion or open borders or policing in America or patriarchy. And I was willing to pick that fight every time if if anything, I looked for them because it came with this sort of self-righteous feeling of I'm doing something right by putting down these people who in my mind I hated. I was taught to hate people who were conservative because they represented hatred 
for me, they represented white supremacy. They represented this massive force that constantly had its thumb pressing down on me and did not want to see me succeed. At least that was what it was in my mind. So I was constantly battling with kids, and that would happen throughout high school uh, as well. I entered high school, and in high school, I signed up for a speech class, and every single speech was about dogma without fail. I would get up and talk about how women, all women should have the right to abort an abortion uh, under any circumstances. I would talk about how white students need to be allies. I would talk about reparations. I would talk about restorative justice. And I considered myself to be pretty well educated in these things, but only in the sense that I knew the talking points that I was taught and I knew the catchphrases and the slogans. So I would write these speeches and every single time people could anticipate what I was going to talk about and how I did it. And and sometimes students would complain and and pick arguments with me. And every single time I would fight them to the, the best of my abilities are really not the best of my abilities to, with the best dogma that I that I had. And in high school, I had a group of best friends who happened to be conservative. And they, I think, were truly scared to have conversations with me about politics. And we just avoided it at all costs because I was not a nice person. When you couple this ideology and dogma with the hatred that you feel and the anger that you feel towards you white people towards America, towards our institutions and systems, towards the schooling system, because remember, everything is pitted against you in this vein of thought. I was angry. And I remember that my, my best friends would talk about reverse racism, which now I truly believe to be just racism. But this concept that white people cannot experience racism because they hold the power in this country. I'm, heard, I'm sure you've heard that, Taylor. Oh, never, never. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they I, I was taught from a young age that only only black people and Hispanic people, not even Asians, because we, we leave them out of the equation so often when we have political discussions, but that only black people and Hispanic people could truly experience racism because they had a lack of power and a lack of privilege. And because white people held all the power, the privilege, they had higher socioeconomic status, it wasn't possible for you to be racist towards white people. So my white friends would talk to me about how they're seeing all this racist stuff towards white people on the internet and i would sit there and go no you're not because it doesn't exist you can't be reverse racist towards white people and for whatever reason these girls remained friends with me and they're still friends with me to this day but that is who i was that is what i was like uh in in particular in florida there there was that state was a hotbed for political discussions. And what really ramped up my involvement and my activism was the Parkland shooting. So the Parkland shooting happens at a high school and multiple students die because another student decides to bring a gun on campus. Now, knowing the sides of the left, of course, a, a massive anti-gun and gun reform movement was sparked in the wake of this horrific attack that happened. And I was so ready to jump in. Florida in particular started pushing for legislation that would allow teachers to have guns on campus, which is honestly a piece of legislation that I still question to this day whether or not that's helpful uh, in, in saving children's lives. But of course, I was angry at this you you want a gun near me on a school campus how dare you and i organized every single student that i could to wear red t-shirts and go to the school board and i gave this bold and impassioned speech to these school board members which i wish i wish i had a video to show you guys today it, it exists somewhere in the ether on the internet if you guys can find it uh please don't ever show me it because I'm sure it is very, very cringy. But I went to this school board and started protesting them. And I remember saying, you know, I might be a kid now and I might be in high school, but one of these days I'm going to be a constituent. And you better believe that when I am, I am voting you out. Just the amount of self-righteousness that I had at such a young age 
uh, it should have been very, very concerning to me, to my parents, to my school, but it really wasn't. And I was constantly affirmed in this. And after doing that school board protest and giving that speech, I was invited to be a speaker at the March for Our Lives in Orlando. So after the Parkland shooting happened, students everywhere started organizing these protests called March for Our Lives, where they all took to the streets and advocated for gun reform and in some cases a complete and utter ban of the Second Amendment across the United States. And I was invited to speak. So I said, absolutely, I will do that. And uh, unlucky for myself, I have a video of me doing that and giving that speech, and I'm going to react to it here today with you guys and hopefully uh, debunk some of the things I said. I'm going to be just really cringing a lot uh, during this entire video. Luckily, it's only about three minutes, so let's go through it. Here we go. Angle. And while I came here today to witness a movement led by young people just like me, I also came to talk about how this issue has a disproportionate effect on the people of color in our communities. We need to talk about how gun violence is often a daily occurrence for young black and brown people in our communities and all over the world. Okay, first of all, <laughs> my outfit is just so... So lefty. I have this huge afro, which I like pulled back into like this afro mohawk. I've got the artsy pants on. Who did I think I was? Who did I? Th I, I, I honestly think that I thought I was Angela Davis uh, at this at this ripe age of, I believe, 16 when this happened. Wasn't March for Our Lives about 2016, I think? That sounds right. You know, that sounds right. The words that come to mind in watching this is something we say a lot when we look at a lot of these woke TikToks or maybe like a Joy Reid rant or something when they're completely wrong. But uh -huh. we say... It's the confidence for me. <laughs> it's the confidence for me watching you. You are so confident. I really yes. am. And yeah. it's because I was constantly being told by people, this is what you need to do. You're doing the right thing. We need voices like yours. Nobody's going to listen to us. So they need to listen to you. And I thought, yes, I don't need to understand the world. I need to change the world and I need to transform it. And that's what I did. Now, it's funny because sometimes when I go back and listen to myself or I go back and look at old things that I wrote as a leftist, you know how when somebody's talking to you and you're like, you're almost there, you're almost there, but, and then they just jump off the cliff and they're completely wrong. What I just said there is that black people and young black and brown people in America are far more likely to be impacted by gun violence in this country. A completely and utterly true statement, what I just said. But am I giving it with the right connotation? Am I giving it with the right facts and the right narrative here? No, I'm talking about this in reference to white shooters of black people. I'm talking about this when it comes to police officers, when I should be focusing on, you know, what we call now black on black crime. And eventually we'll have to take a deep dive into that in another episode. I talked about that a little bit in my policing episode. If you guys want to go back and watch that, it'll be the video right before this on this channel where we talk about really the disparate impact with gun violence when it comes to black on black crime and black police encounters. Oh, okay, I'm going to keep watching this. Oh my gosh. They look no different than me and they live in neighborhoods no different than my own. We need to talk about how people of color are much more likely to lose their lives staring down the barrel of a gun. Again, true, but largely incorrect. <laughs> we need to talk about how this has been a problem for people of color for generations and generations. Not quite. <laughs> Not quite. Actually, the recent really big growth in gun violence is not past generations and generations. And you'll find that people on the left love to use this as a talking point. The disparate impact of gun violence has been generations and generations. The disparate impact of mass incarceration has been generations and generations. The, the socioeconomic uh, decline of the black family is generations and generations. And then you look into it and you go, oh, no, it isn't, because actually the black family was going through sort of this golden age before we instituted this welfare state and, and started having these conversations around uh, what it means to be black and identifying blackness and talking about racism and all these things that sort of draw our attention away from real problems. So, oh, yikes. Here we go. 
And in the case of the Parkland shooting and many before it, we need to talk about how shooters of white backgrounds are referred to as children, former students, mentally ill individuals, and lonely and confused rather than what they actually are, and that is terrorists. <laughs> it's the confidence for me. Oh my gosh, I almost want to cry watching this. You know, a lot of people say like, you're such a liar, you are never a leftist. You know what, I, I wish, I wish I was lying and I wish I did not have video evidence <laughs> of this happening in my life. Okay, let's talk about what I just said. So I said, so often in the case of mass shooters, we talk about how we call them kids, we call them former students, we call them uh, mentally ill, we call them lonely and confused, instead of calling them what they actually are, terrorists. Okay, this is not an argument. And, and it would have been, I wish somebody had just grabbed me and been like, you know what, you can be, you know, you can be all of those things at once and actually not focusing on the mental health aspect of it, not focusing on that lonely and confused part of it is actually going to cause more of these things to occur. And as I've gotten older, obviously, and looked into these issues, mental health, things like being on uh, SSRIs, antidepressants and things like that are closely linked to whether or not you commit mass shootings. And that's something that nobody wants to talk about when we have these discussions. Clearly, I did not want to talk about that at 16. I was so focused on what is just plain to see, what is what is just right in front of the face. And what so often what is right in front of the face is race and gender. So if I saw somebody who was white and male, I had already made up my mind. That was in the case of police officers and average everyday people. That was in the case of mass shooters. If you were white and male, I was done with you. I already had my narrative. I had my talking points. And obviously this is clear to that. But it, it what shows here is how the ideas that I was given as a young person truly ramped themselves up and came to the forefront as I got older and older and older. Because when I was young, even a little kid before I knew anything about politics, I was being told that when I went to the grocery store with my mother in my white rural area, that white people would look at me and my mom and give us bad looks. And when I asked, well, why why would somebody give me and my mom a bad look? I'm just with my mom in the grocery store. I'm picking up some apples and putting them in the cart. What's going on? And I would be told that it was because I was black and my mom was white and people didn't, white people did not think that we should be paired together, did not think that my mom should have married a black man and had a black child. So learn that at five, six years old and then check back in with that person when they're 16, 17, and into their early 20s. Are we shocked that I turned out like this at that age? Shouldn't be. Let's keep watching. The rate of death by gun homicide for black and brown people exceeds those among white people in all 50 states. Why? We need to start to mend this disparity by declaring all gun violence unacceptable and recognizing the fact that this nation's criminal justice system is based on racism and systemic oppression. What a non sequitur argument. <laughs> I don't even know how to debunk that because it makes no sense. Oh my gosh. The same system that allowed a police officer to shoot Stephen Clark 20 times in his backyard a few days ago. Woo! Getting shot 20 times! Woo! Keep going! Uh. The the people cheering for you is really... Uh, that's just as strong a thing as, as anything. That, that It's the reinforcement of... You know, it's like not only are you given these simplistic narratives, like you were saying, it's like literally skin-deep narratives about mm. how to interpret the world and how to interpret your own identity. But then you, you link up with people who are championing that and patting you on the back the more that you just puppet these talking points, even if they don't make sense, which is the crazy part. Right. And this was a crowd of thousands and thousands of people. I wish the camera had panned over to show you how many people were listening to this uh, in, in watching and cheering this on. Unbelievable. The same system that sends people of color to prison for 10% longer sentences than white people for the same crime. 
failed to mention why uh, and those and those studies that talk about sentencing and, and that disparate impact on black people do not look at why that's the case, whether or not the person was a repeat offender, how many people were put in danger during the incident, how many people could ha- have died. Uh, what weapon was used during the incident, how violent the crime was, yet they go and they put out these things. Like, I I believe now the stat is that black people get 20% higher sentences than white people for the same crime. And again, no mention to as uh, to why these things happen. Same system that mentally evaluated Dylan Roof, a white shooter who took nine black lives as they prayed, not once, but twice, even though he said many times that he knew exactly what he was doing. This is unacceptable and needs to be addressed because where is the justice in this system? And where is the justice in this nation's gun control legislation? We need to seize this moment and this power, not only for school safety, but for everyone's safety. We should feel safe wherever we are, whoever we are. And we will march on these streets today and believe me when I say that we will march to the polls. I could not even vote. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to walk him straight up to the poll center and then be like, all right, now you guys go in and vote. I'm going to stay out here and keep screaming at people. Right, right, right. (laughs) See you guys. Uh, Yeah, this is your polling site. Go go ahead in there and make some changes, ladies and gentlemen. Wow. Okay, I think we're almost done here. Let's finish it up. Oh, my God. We all need change and we need it now, not later, now. Wow, a whole lot of nothing was said there, yet cheered on so passionately by a crowd. If you're not listening closely, uh, Mm -hmm. then it doesn't sound like you're saying nothing. It sounds like, wow, these people really know what's up and they wouldn't be so passionate about this if there wasn't something going on here and it wasn't a grave injustice that's being protested and wasn't something that I need to join my voice to and start screaming to. That's that's what that, it's almost like the mob effect, just like, but sucking you into a whole worldview. Yeah. And it's again, I hadn't I was so disconnected from this. I, I, I was speaking in this speech as if, you know, these communities look no different than my community. What do you mean? My white rural conservative community? What am I talking about? Uh, they do look very different from my community. Uh, so much of that was just lies. And I remember working on that speech and like showing it to my mom and the people that worked with her before I did it. Just like making sure. Does this sound good? Does this sound good? How should I say this? How should I say this? And it's just training in a lot of ways and i remember being so inspired not by adults who were in these political movements and giving speeches like this but other children if you guys remember and were part of this and keeping up with everything when the march for our lives happened and when the parkland shooting happened we saw two activists come out of that incident actually a multitude of them but the two that i followed and who were most uh exposed when it came to media and social media were David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez, two students at Parkland who joined this anti-gun and this gun reform movement after the Parkland shooting. And I remember looking at these kids who were the same age as I was and going, wow, I look up to them. And I, I believe, I mean, quote me, correct me if I'm wrong, but Time Magazine did a whole front page thing about how young Americans were going to be leading the charge of change in this country, and they were truly the ones to watch when it came to politics. Imagine that in any other field of study. Imagine saying that for engineering, 13-year-olds were the ones to watch, 13 to 16-year-olds were the ones to watch, or for any sort of scientific movement or medical movement that 13-year-olds and 16-year-olds are the ones to watch out for because they're truly going to be guiding the way and shaping our, our view and our thoughts on things insane. And this was in the same era as Greta Thunberg as well, coming out about this whole climate change movement, which I believe she was 13 years old when she started speaking out and becoming famous for this. And the affirmation that I experienced, like you saw in that video, that's thousands of people. Imagine millions of people as a young kid telling you what you're doing is fantastic. And not only is it something that you need to keep doing, but the fate of the world is contingent upon you being the one to speak out and you being the one to be active. And if you don't do it, everything's going to fall apart. The people who are relying on you, your fellow victims are also going to fall apart as well. That's got to be a lot of weight to hold. And I truly had not really thought about it until uh, this moment now. But as, as a young person being told that the fate of the world 
lies in your hands and what you say is an interesting thing. Now, when I graduated high school, I graduated high school shortly after making that speech. <laughs> and I thought, higher education? Absolutely not. We don't need to go to college. The best thing that I can do is become an activist. We have so little time to change the world. I need to do it now. I need to do it now. So I went to my mom and said, you know, I don't want to go to college. Can I work for your organization? And she said, okay, let me talk to some people. And she went and talked to them. I did an interview and boom, I was hired. And what was my job? As if the story could not get any more uh, ridiculous. You know, what is fact is often so much more strange than fiction. I got hired to be a youth organizer. And what did that mean? It meant that I was going around to middle schools and high schools and finding students who were politically involved or politically apathetic and going, you heard about socialism? You heard about racism in America? Have you heard about patriarchy? Have you heard about how all women should have the right to an abortion? No? Come and join me, kids. Let me teach you about your own oppression as it was taught to me. And then you can join this organization because guess what? We can't change the world if we don't have you doing it. And I was creating other activists and really instilling fear into other people that their future was in jeopardy if they did not act. And I got all these students to come and join me. And what we did was we basically funneled them through the organization. So they'd come to a meeting with me and I'd go through a little PowerPoint with them. And then I'd say, hey, do you want to come and knock doors for campaigns? Sure. It's super fun. Let's go and do that. They come and knock doors. Okay. Do you want to become a fellow? And what the fellows were was that they worked with us for a summer and we paid them a stipend of, I want to say it was like $500. So now not only do you get to have this self-righteous fulfillment of being an activist, but we also paid you for it. Uh, and I tell a lot of people when you see these protests, think about how many people are organizers or students who are in these fellowships getting paid to be there because uh, it can be quite a lot. And it was in, in my case with working with students. So we'd funnel them through the organization. And now I was working with this whole team of young people. And this is a phenomenon that I've thought about for quite some time and just coined it, I think, self-regulating victimhood, that once you've successfully taught somebody that they're a victim, that they're oppressed, they will regulate that for themselves. You don't have to have the conversation again. And not only will they do that, but they will go and convince other people that they are victims as well, because it's the only way out. That's the only way to fight it. And that is what I did. Uh, now, of course, that did not last <laughs> uh, because I'm here talking to you right now. And so often people, I think, tried to speak to me or at least wanted to speak to me and maybe had a fear and intimidation towards doing so because I was so averse to hearing things that were different from what I believed. I think I actively tried to stay as far away from people who disagreed with me as possible. I did not want to hear it. I viewed it as a personal attack on who I was as a person. And I shut everyone out. And I, I always try to think about it. You know, was I afraid of being wrong? Is that what truly led me to push people away? Or did I truly have hatred for people who disagreed with me? And maybe it was a combination of, of both. I'm not sure. Have you ever even, have you ever felt that, Taylor? of just like, I can't possibly listen to somebody who disagrees with me, either from like a religious fundamentalist standpoint or even a conservative standpoint. Did you have that? Um, Honestly, I mean, yes, there's, it's obviously like this person is saying something that is so off base coming from such a, uh, grounded in something that is so non-factual that it's unbearable to listen to. But I wouldn't say I ever really had this like hatred mm -hmm. for people that, that, um, are coming from a different place necessarily, right. and, and which is interesting. Like you were talking about how it sucks you in and puts the weight of the world on your shoulders and says, you know, it's all up to you to change the world. I think something else it does is also it, it puts this moral, simplistic moral paradigm on you to where mm -hmm. it's like it's up to you to defeat this evil. And so you look at the people who disagree with you as fundamentally evil and you see yeah. it as your mission in life, your duty, your responsibility to not just not just uh, fight back against that evil, but really like destroy them and that yeah that's a different approach that's like it's like a moralized approach and that makes it so much more intense and makes your honest thinking go further in the back of your head right I, yeah that's so true because i remember saying you know politics is not just politics it's who you are as a person it's what you believe it is yeah. it is your your moral ground that you stand on and if you're a conservative <laughs> you are against me in every way shape and form you could possibly be against me and now you know i go on twitter you know 
when when somebody who is very prominent in either of these movements dies, like when we saw the death of Rush Limbaugh, rest in peace, uh, so many people were going on the internet and saying, you know, good riddance, I'm so glad he's dead, I wish it was a horrible and painful death. And you look at that, and at least now I look at that and go, oh my gosh, how can you say that about a person just because you disagreed with them? But then I check back in with 17-year-old me, and that would have been exactly what I thought. I might not have verbalized it or put it on the internet, but it definitely would have been what I thought about that particular person, which is so crazy to me. And we try to think about how people can be so okay with others getting hurt or committing acts of evil. And I think it is very much grounded in that, in our our view mm. and our immediate jump to dehumanize people who disagree with us, who are represent something outside of our worldview. Uh, so that's what I was like. Uh, now we're going to talk about sort of the transformation, how the red pill came through and, and what happened there. And guys, we're going to cut off on the PragerU channel right now and go only to the Amla Epinobi colon unapologetic channel. It's in the description down below. We're also going to put it in the chat. So if you want to keep watching the rest of this episode, find out what my red pill moments were, go to the Amla Epinobi channel, check it out, go subscribe, and I'll see you guys in the live chat over over there I am watching and listening now let's get to the red pill moments and how this happened for me and a, a lot of people ask I think it is the question that I get asked the most is what was the moment that made you realize that you were not a leftist or at least you did not identify uh, with a majority of what the political left believes and there was no aha moment. It was a multitude of moments. So I'm going to go through some of those and go through them quickly before we sort of get to the end and wrap up here. But I'll, I'll tell you a bit, I can give you a little bit of insight to how these organizations work. Now, of course, a left-leaning organization is going to function very similar to a right-leaning organization. We have the meetings, we organize, we work on our different projects, those things happen. Uh, but the meetings start a little differently, I'm going to imagine, than they do in, in conservative uh, groups and rooms. So when I was working for this organization, we did something called community agreements, which if you've ever heard me do a speech before, I talk about this quite a bit because it, it speaks to the culture and the environment of some of these places. So you come and you sit with all of your coworkers and before the meeting starts, let's say we're doing a meeting on a protest that we're about to do in a week or so. Uh, we'll say, we'll pull up a little whiteboard and we'll start writing down community agreements on them. And those are rules that you agree to abide by before the meeting starts. Some of these rules will be do not misgender somebody. State your pronouns before you introduce yourself and before you speak on any given occasion. Make space and take space because we know we love slogans. So, you know, speak for a little bit and then let somebody else talk. Don't yuck my yum, which is, you know, try not to criticize people too much. We had posters in the in the rooms that said, you don't give people advice on their health or their weight or on what they should be eating as that um, represents fat phobia. At one point, we had a conversation where we could not use the, the statement stand up and speak up anymore because it was ableist to Towards people who could not stand or who were a wheelchair bound. So, <laughs> how could you guys have been so ignorant to not, to not be so ableist? Yeah. It's just, oh my gosh. So, <laughs> you would think that would be enough to make me think, oh, am I really working with the right group of people here? But it wasn't enough. And uh, one of these days, we started writing down community agreements, and my coworker got to the end of them, and she said to all the white people in the room, the cisgendered heterosexuals, don't speak at all during this meeting. You've had the stage for long enough. We don't want to hear from you anymore. It's not your time anymore. Let the most oppressed people speak. And I remember something striking me. Even though this was virtually language I had heard this entire time that I was working here, just something about it felt so blatant it was something about it was so sharp uh and i remember just looking around this room and seeing people nodding some people laughing even white people like my mother in the room agreeing with this wholeheartedly and thinking oh no that does not sound right and i was going to work every day and hearing all of this stuff and then going home to my white family that had taken care of me my entire life fed me clothed me made sure i was doing well in school made sure i was happy and healthy and hearing that those people were inherently racist and that there was something wrong with them since they were born and thought okay you can't hold these you can't hold these thoughts in the brain at the same time 
but still, I was so dedicated and I didn't want the things that I believed to fall apart. And I still have that problem to this day, whether or not that is linked to what I was taught or that is part of who I am as a person that I just need to work on. Uh, we'll, we'll hopefully come to a conclusion on that during the duration of this show and in some other future episode. But I did not want to believe that what I thought was wrong. So I continued to work and went about my day. I got assigned a project. And this project was particularly interesting to me because it was race focused, which is uh, my the most important issue to me or was the most important issue to me then and sort of is now. Uh, this particular project was called the Groveland Four. It was a documentary about four men, four black men who would be wrongfully accused of sexual assault in Florida near the town that I grew up in and who went through a completely traumatic experience due to that false accusation. I believe two of them were killed wrongfully so, and the other two were just so traumatized that I, I'm sure their lives were never the same. You can look up the story and, you know, fact check me on that. But that was the the premise of what I was doing. And I was showing this documentary again to middle school, middle schoolers, high schoolers, college students and going, look, racism, you see it. And this still exists today. I know this was a long time ago, but this exists today and it's happening all the time. Look at our criminal justice system. Look at mass incarceration. It's all racism. And little did I know in the background, Brett Kavanaugh was going to be accused of sexual assault during his Supreme Court nomination and his hearings. And I watched this happen. I watched what's her name, Christina Blasey Ford, come forth and give this emotional plea for why he should not be on the Supreme Court because of what he had supposedly and allegedly done to her. And I saw the man cry in front of not just the, all of the senators, but in front of America about this whole situation and his name being dragged through the mud, a very similar thing that happened to Clarence Thomas during his Supreme Court nominations. There seems to be a, a trend there. And I thought, okay... Whether or not he did this or he did not do this, why is the side that I represent saying that he does not deserve due process in this case and that he's guilty uh, without being proven uh, of anything? And I went to my boss and said, hey, we're working on this project, the Groveland Four, and this is happening in Kavanaugh right now, yet you have absolutely no sympathy for him, but the utmost sympathy for these four men. What's the difference? And he straight up told me the difference is that Kavanaugh is white. He looks like a frat boy. He did it. He should hang was what he said. Uh, now, I'm paraphrasing except for the hang part because he said he should hang. That was how he finished, you know, explaining himself to me. And again, boom, strike two. I don't feel like I'm in the right room right now. I feel like we are being antithetical to what we are uh, claiming to espouse, this tolerance, this anti-racism narrative. And again, I couldn't possibly, you know, deviate from what I've been told my whole life. I'm going to continue working. I started knocking doors in Florida for the Andrew Gillum campaign, which we all know how that turned out. If you don't give it a quick Google, I can't talk about what that man did, but <laughs> not good. And I... Knocked the door. The the people answered. 18-year-old me went, hi, have you heard of Andrew Gillum? And would you love to vote for him? I can talk through all of his talking points and tell you everything that he believes and how everything is going to be so much better for you when he's the governor of Florida. And this guy answered the door. He happened to be a Cuban-American. And I started saying, hi, have you heard of Andrew Gillum? Would you like to vote for him? Let me tell you about all the talking points that I just learned five minutes ago. And he said, hold on. And he came outside the door and this Cuban guy started talking to me about how I came here from Cuba. My people were persecuted under this, you know, dictatorship in my country. We had no freedoms. And where did I go to to escape that? He said, I came to America. While people were protesting and fighting in Cuba, what were they fighting for? American values. What flag do you see the people holding in the streets? The American flag. And he said, I might be Cuban and there's this expectation that comes along with being uh, Hispanic or of Hispanic descent in America, but I am a constitutional conservative and I will not be voting for him. And I think you should truly rethink why it is that you believe what you believe. Is it because this is just what you've been taught and what has been expected of you or is it because you truly believe it? And again, this should have been strike three. You're out. Go question yourself. Go do some research. I went, nah, crazy old man. <laughs> Uh, and I left and went home and continued to do the work that I did. And I there's there's one more story that truly I think was the 
you know, straw that broke the camel's back, and that's getting pulled over by a police officer. If you guys want to know how that went, I cover that in the episode that I just put out yesterday on policing in America, our unapologetic special. So you can go and check that out in the episode before. But all of this sort of coupled together, sat with me, and eventually I came to the conclusion that what I was doing uh, was not right in, not in this moment, not in the future, was not right in the past, and that I needed to leave the organization. But first I wanted to confront and ask questions and see if I would get answers. So I went to the VP of the organization at the time, I believe he still works there to this day, and I sat down with him and I said, you know, I honestly am seeing a lot of hypocrisy. And this was an embarrassing thing for me to do. It was a hard thing for me to do because there is sort of this aura of if you disagree with one thing, you're against us in every way, shape or form. So I went to him and sort of nervously asked him these questions and got no answers. He looked at me and said, you know, you just don't know how oppressed you are. And it's not my job to teach you of that oppression. And it's not my fault that you're not as angry as you should be. And you have to let other people, you know, just do and and say what they want, which I agree with that statement and that statement alone. But generally saying you just don't understand your own oppression. And once you figure it out, you let me know. And that was it. Boom. Wiped my hands of it. Left the organization and spent a year or so just going and looking into what I truly believed and trying to find that out. Now, I want to show one video in particular that red-pilled me, and uh, hopefully this is something that you can recommend to other people uh, in your lives and they can check out. This is Larry Elder and Dave Rubin, and I remember the first time I watched this video and going, wow, uh, there is something wrong here. I also watched a PragerU video called Cops Are the Good Guys and going, wow, I was lied to about this. What else was I lied to about? And going down this rabbit hole of finding things out. But let's watch a quick clip of this really quick. There are some systemic issues. Give, give me an example. G tell me what you think the most systemic racist issue is. What is it? Well, I would say that because black people in most cases, in many cases, were descendants of slaves, that racism as a as an institution, that it just, a certain amount of it just exists. I, 2015? It, give, give me the most blatant racist example you can come up with right now. Um, I think you could probably find evidence that, in general, cops are, that, that cops are more willing to shoot if the uh, perpetrator is black than white. What's your data? Than for, white. What's your basis for saying that? L last year... The well, look, I know a lot of people would say, look what's going on in Chicago. I, I, right? I know what they would say. Yeah. I'm talking about what the facts are. 965 people were shot by cops last, uh, last year and killed. 4% of them were white cops shooting unarmed blacks. In, in Chicago in 2011, 21 people were shot and killed by cops. Uh, in 2015, there were seven. Uh, in Chicago, which is a third black, a third white, and a third Hispanic, 70% of the homicides are black on black. Uh, about 40 per month, almost 500 uh, in the year, per year last year in Chicago, and 75% of them are unsolved. Where is the Black Lives Matter on that? The idea that a racist white cop uh, and shooting unarmed black people is a peril to black people is BS. It's yeah. complete and total BS. And, and the reason for these so-called activists saying this is the assumption that racism remains a major problem in America. The media, CNN, especially MSNBC, runs down whenever a black cop shoots somebody, uh, and, and it's a, some, some march on Washington. It's ridiculous. Uh, black people, half the homicides in this country are committed by and against black people. Last year, there were 14,000 homicides, I'm not talking about suicides, I'm talking about homicides. Mm -hmm. um, half of them were black, 96% of them black on black of that 7,000. Where's a black, black Black Lives Matter people on that. So that, there's where you would say that this is purely because of social justice. Uh, okay, pause there. Now, I love this video. I love it. I'm just, if anybody wants this sort of quintessential red pill aha moment, this is the video to look at. And I, when did this video come out? I don't know exactly. In 2017, this video came out. So I, I came across it in 2018, maybe early 2019, and watched it and thought, oh my goodness, here's now the other end of the coin. You have this white liberal who's Dave Rubin, who is now a very dear friend of mine in what has become just this uh, twisted world that I now live in, and Larry Elder, a, a black man representing conservative beliefs and that sort of value set, coming to him and saying, where's the systemic racism? And I remember pausing for a second and going, okay, 
he's going to say this, 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 and that, and nothing. There wasn't an answer. And I remember thinking, well, wait a second, do I have an answer to this question? Uh, and are the things that I truly believe to be systemic racism actually due to racism? Or is there some other explanation for that? And Larry just riddles off fact after fact after fact, not even really debunking anything because Dave couldn't give him anything in that moment. And I remember having Dave on the show and asking him about this moment in particular and him talking about this nervousness that he felt to where he was just like, oh, no, this this does not look good, that I don't have an answer for this. And so many times I felt that when I was doing my work because I would meet people who represented opposition all the time. And I would just write them off as being hate-filled people. Little did I know they were just trying to help me support what I was saying or at least find what is true. So by all means, go and watch the rest of this. Uh, this, this video is titled The Moment Larry Elder Changed Dave Rubin's Mind Forever, Systemic Racism. And I went through that experience just like Dave did in this video at the same time watching it and trying to uh, come back to it. A couple other, or one other video I'll recommend is Facts and Fallacies with Tom Sowell. So I found the PragerU video. I found this Dave Rubin, Larry Elder video. And then I found Tom Sowell. And that man, I have his book in the background right there, Discrimination and Disparities, somewhere, if you can see it in the wide shot. Uh, I found that man and watched every single video that he put out. I bought all of his books and I started reading. And he embodies objectivity for me and just saying not what is brought about by emotions or even to me what what seems to be a, a particular bias he doesn't seem to have that uh of course everybody has their their biases but i think he approaches his work in in the scope of trying to figure out what is actually true he never asserts anything uh that has not been backed up by what he has found by visiting the places that he's talking about doing the research doing the studies himself and I read his book, Discrimination and Disparities, and everything was just shattered, everything that I believed. And there's a moment where you have to sort of come to terms with that and go, okay, I admit it. I was wrong. So sorry. <laughs> so sorry that I did the things that I did. And I had that moment. And after that, I started you know, just leading my normal life. I worked in medicine instead of doing politics. I didn't want the arguments anymore. I didn't want to fight with people. I really just didn't want to do the mental labor that it took to be objective. And I one day downloaded TikTok of all things and started looking through it and looking at what people were saying. And I saw the exact same things that I was being taught at the what ripe age of five and six years old, that whole uh, experience that I went through in the election in 2008, all the subsequent things that I went through that were so uh, entrenched in dogma. And I saw that all in 60 second videos. And I recognized that millions of people were on this app uh, watching this stuff and, and being indoctrinated by it. So I thought, OK, let me start making videos about my beliefs. And I guess people just did not expect somebody who looked like me to be saying these things. And they went viral, even though these videos were stupid. I go back and I look at them. I have like a couple here that I will show you guys very briefly. And I look at them and I'm just like, what? Why did these get me anywhere? But they did. Here's uh, here's one of them. When the liberals try to brainwash me again. Uh -oh, I don't need no ride. Thank y'all. Not they trying to pick me up. <laughs> And, th and that one did all right. I think that one got like 60,000 views or something like that. I'm not sure. Uh, just little voiceover content that meant absolutely nothing. Here's uh, the left trying to win an argument. What'll it be, fellas? Mustard! You're racist. And that's it. There's no other option. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. It's clever. That's, it's, it's not bad. It's like clever. But In it's TikTok just, world, those made sense. Yeah. And you're a young person. Yeah. You got to give yourself more credit. You act like it's all cringe. But I you were talented. So. That's how it we found you. We it, never found you if you didn't. If you weren't good at TikTok. I get, it just is just like conservative girl content for me that I'm just like, oh man, there's no, I'm not saying anything profound here. <laughs> Although some people might find some deep profoundness in that video. <laughs> but this is what really launched me into doing this, uh, which I'm so happy for and so glad that this happened to me but yeah i started making videos like this and they just blew up and went viral and they landed on taylor's desk and sabrina's desk here at prager you yeah. which you want to talk about that moment before we wrap up here i mean yeah so we just 
uh, we're just on this on social media, you know, I mean, I was on, been on the social team at PragerU and we're coming across different things. And I was talking with Sabrina who, uh, was, who runs PragerForce for us. And, uh, I don't remember if she she probably sent me one of your videos first. We were doing a casting call at the time, and great timing. Um, but yeah, you were just taking over the internet by storm, and mm-hmm. uh, you were everywhere. Um, people were sharing your videos on Twitter, and they were going viral there. People like you you weren't even on Twitter, but people were just finding you breaking down these topics because you went from these these silly ones, which you, we still do the little silly ones now and then. But uh, you went from those to like breaking down you know statistics and sharing some of the stuff that you were researching and putting it in a very bite size form that was uh that was well laid out and well thought out as you still do and which by the way if you haven't watched uh the first special that we released this week mm-hmm. uh, on sunday amala's first unapologetic special on how she stopped hating the police go check that out uh that's uh, the links in the chat here um, but it's the same thing. It's that the essence of she's very just clear thinking, truth seeking. We're going to lay out the facts for you in the in that way, and that's really the essence of of this show. Yep. But it's been really cool to watch your journey. Just that same through line all the way through is like I just want to know the truth. Um, I'm thinking for myself. I'm not going to be spoon fed dogma from anyone, and uh, we're I'm going to lay out the facts as I see them and in a way that. You, only your talent can. Um, Taylor, stop. Yeah. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, so I'm really excited for, for what lies ahead. And I think we're, we're going to help a lot of people just uh, do and let into your process of thinking and, and um, just deconstructing things, distilling out dogma, getting to the facts and, and laying them out for people. I'm really excited to just go on that journey and going issue by issue um, of what's going on in the culture and uh, yeah, just helping the world see the truth. Right. So, guys, before I, I'm going to wrap up and give sort of a closing monologue here, but I want to ask you guys, please, to like, subscribe, turn on the notification bell to be notified every single day when we go live. That is now 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. We'll be with you guys. It's also going to be on all podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play. It will go up in audio form so that you guys can listen uh, if you miss the episode live and you want to listen later. So please subscribe here to my YouTube channel, Amala Epinobi, colon, unapologetic, and we will have more content than just The Daily Show. We're going to be putting out interviews. Interviews. We're going to be putting out those special episodes once a month, and eventually that will probably become more frequent. We're going to be doing reactions when big stories break, uh, and we want an immediate take on what's happening, and we want to sort of get up to date on that. I will be going live just to talk to you guys about those things. Now, again, the the goal of this show is to talk about a what's trending and what people are already talking about, what's already in in the sphere of, of influence for people because I feel like we we need direction on those things and I myself need direction on those things. So we'll be talking about that. We'll be talking about other pressing matters. We'll be talking about the future. We'll be talking about underground influences that work to uh, sort of shape the way that we think and what we believe. And a lot of things that we're going to try to focus on are what are our blinders? What are my blinders? What are Taylor's blinders? What are the blinders of people? Oh, I don't who... have any blinders. <laughs> yeah, not a single one. Yeah. Uh, I am just tried and true all the yeah. time. I never mess up. I never say the wrong thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Probably so... true of you, but yeah. <laughs> no, definitely not true of me. So going through that on a case by case basis, giving a good faith argument for why people who uh, label themselves as progressive leftists or liberal believe what they believe and doing the same for people who lean right and call themselves conservative and trying to just shape our opinions, hopefully by the end of each episode, coming to some sort of a conclusion on what we believe. I believe tomorrow we're going to be talking about Disney and really the rapid descent of that company into being nothing more than a, a political play field for progressives uh, really trying to give ideology to young children. It's something that's come to light recently. I don't think Disney was always that way. I loved Disney as a kid. I thought they represented family values, values of freedom, values of, of growth, and really looking in at the inner self and finding out who you are and who you want to be and being true to who you are and who you want to be. And now I think that has somewhat changed, but I could be wrong. So we're going to look into that, look into the people who are backing Disney and what they say Disney represents. Look at the people who are opposed to Disney and what they say it represents. Looking at videos released by Chris Rufo that show Disney executives having these conversations. And then having the discussion, the grooming discussion, because I'm going on social media and reading the news, and there seems to be a massive debate among right-leaning people as to whether or not teaching kids uh, sexual ideology can be considered grooming. I believe the word 
pedophilia is being thrown around quite a bit as well. Is that rightful? Is that something that we should be saying in these cases? Is it on a case-by-case basis? So we'll have that discussion, hopefully come to a conclusion here. Now, uh, what I want to also point out is underlying influences in what we see and what we believe, and there are underlying influences on both sides. Do not get that wrong. And I want to close out the show uh, by not only saying, you know, please subscribe, like, leave a comment down below on a topic that you would like us to discuss and talk about. What's something that you feel like you don't know enough about or you want to have a discussion about? Put that down below in the comments after we end the show. But if you're ever wondering, you know, how people can be motivated and as it pertains to this specific episode in my own uh, indoctrination and awakening, I want to read this Booker T. Washington quote. And think about this not only in relation to people of color or colored people and Negroes, as he uses in this quote. But think about this in relation to yourself and your own motivations and people who are trying to persuade you as well. There is another class of colored people who make a business of keeping the troubles, the wrongs, and the hardships of the Negro race before the public, having learned that they are able to make a living out of their troubles. They have grown into the settled habit of advertising their wrongs, partly because they want sympathy and partly because it pays. Some of these people do not want the Negro to lose his grievances because they do not want to lose their jobs. And that's why this channel is going to focus way more on values and the fundamentals of why we believe things, the underbelly of why we believe things. And we're going to talk about we are not going to be talking about politicians and legislation and all these big actors because let's let's be real. They get paid to uh, just espouse uh, exactly what they are told to. It's why you can put together these news clips of people saying the same things a hundred and hundred times. We have freedom here on this podcast to say what we truly believe, to give deep dives into what is right, what is wrong, what we uh, come to a conclusion on things. So that's what we're going to try to do. And in, in the same way, we are going to, again, look for those blinders for us and other people. That concludes our first episode. Wow. We did it. <laughs> we did it, guys. It was a lot of turmoil. We were, before we went live, having lots of technical difficulties. It is. Yeah. We'll get your pretty white headphones working soon. Yes. Uh, eventually, uh, everything will be up and in working order, and we will have to worry about nothing, and we'll just go live and do the thing. Uh, but today, we had a little bit of a rocky road, and you got your episode, so I'm just happy that it all came to be. <laughs> It's only up from here. Right. Only up from here. Thank you guys so much for watching. Please like, subscribe, click the notification bell to be notified every single day when we go live. And if you'd rather listen than watch or you'd rather do both, go to Google Play, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts. Listen there. You'll find the full episodes. And that is it for today. Again, tomorrow we're doing a deep dive into Disney and whether or not they're indoctrinating children. Is there subliminal messaging there? So we will see you tomorrow at 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern. Bye, guys.